Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller coming to you today in front of an audience at the Rockwood Market Hall in Gresham. We have come here today to talk about early childhood education. In 2020, Multnomah County voters overwhelmingly approved a new tax on high-income earners. The money is dedicated to a program called Preschool for All. The idea is to give access to quality early childhood education for every family in the county, regardless of their ability to pay. The program is ramping up over time, and it's now in its second year of operation. It has subsidized some existing preschool programs and has created new ones, but it has a long way to go before it meets the goal of 12,000 publicly funded preschool slots by 2030. We're going to hear today from parents, educators, and an academic who has studied the impact of the childcare shortage. We start right now with Leslie Barnes. She is the director of Multnomah County's Preschool and Early, Early Learning Division. It's her job with other people to implement this new program. Leslie Barnes, thanks for having us here. Thank you for inviting me. I want to start with a basic question. How many Multnomah County three- and four-year-olds are going to free preschool right now through this program? I'm close to 1,400 children. So of the slots that we offered last year, we're about at 90 cents at 6% full. And so that means that you know, there's a whole crop of three- and four-year-olds that are in preschool uh, carpets that weren't there before the ballot measure passed. Hmm. So it's a a huge accomplishment. My team, all the folks that planned, um, all the providers, uh, for us to offer that is a huge accomplishment. What's the goal in 2030? If, If all goes well, what is the dream for what it's going to be like? The dream is that any family that wants to have a free publicly funded preschool spot would have one by year 2030. So that means not just preschool for all funded slots, but Head Start slots, um, preschool promise slots. Universal in Multnomah County really depends upon all of those funding streets and all of those opportunities in the community working together so that families can find what they're looking for. That's a key pointer. So, so the plan is not for Multnomah County's voter pass program to take care of all free slots, but to be a big part of a, of a relatively confusing patchwork, actually, right, of, of, of free childcare slots. Agreed. We're trying to knit together a system, a system that looks like no wrong door for families. So, you know, families don't care if they're getting preschool promise preschool for all. They want the care and the preschool that is right for their family. And so what we're trying to make sure is we knit together a system that supports that decision for families. So whether it is a full day, 10-hour preschool opportunity or a school day, six-hour day preschool opportunity, and whatever kind of fleshes out in the end in those options are the kinds of things that we're building in our system right now. And just to be clear, are we only talking about preschool preparatory school for kindergarten for three and four-year-olds, or are we talking about, say, daycare or, or centers that would take infants or toddlers? We're talking about all of that, again, based on family choice and what they're looking for. But what we're looking for is developmentally appropriate, culturally responsive, joyous opportunities for children between the ages of three and four. We're also looking for opportunities that look like welcoming, right, things that look like my home, things that sound like my language, people that look like me, the kind of food that I like to eat. And so we're trying to figure out what do families want. This plan was really pushed forward by families, culturally specific families. Our partners at the PAC at Early Willing Nona told us, this is what we want. We're not talking about miniature K-12. We're talking about really preparing families for a future that looks like joyous opportunities for their children. I want to go back in time just a little bit. It wasn't that long ago, although in COVID years, it seems like like a long time ago. But what are the basics of what voters approved in 2020? Right. 
So what they approved is a universal preschool measure that taxes the highest income earners in our county. They What they approved was us, I don't think everyone knew this, but like there wasn't a system that supported that. And so when they voted that in, we had to design this. So, Meaning a tax system. A tax system, right? A tax system that pays for that. So that didn't exist prior to the ballot measure, but I think people didn't quite understand what they were paying for because, you know, early learning has been underfunded, ignored, disrespected really for decades. And I think there's a lot to look at around wages, around the respectability of it as a profession. And I think those are the things that we're also having to do. Like, what does it look like for someone to think about this as a career that pays them well, that they can stay in as a career? So those are things that we have to answer with workforce development, messages about the importance of early learning and messages about what does it look like for you as a high schooler to think about becoming a preschool teacher? Whereas in the past, people have said, stay away from that. They're only paying you $10 an hour. You don't want to do that. You know, so we had people actively fighting against that as a profession. And so we're fighting to make sure people rec recognize that it's a new opportunity because of preschool for all supporting the system. There's a, a lot of issues I want to dig into as we go, including um, workforce development and, and how you build that pipeline. Yeah. The, the measure passed overwhelmingly. It was about two to one in November of 2020 um, in a really intensely COVID-affected time. Right. And a time when I don't know that political projections, it was hard to know um, what was going to happen. Right. Did you think it was going to pass like that? 64.9% to be exact. <laughs> um, no, I was surprised because even though, so I was on the task force. There's a lot of folks that were here. It was 10 years of planning and thoughtfulness to get to that point. And, it, and two different measures, right? Well, they, they, they got married and became this <laughs> okay. one that passed. So we'll just say it that way. Um, I think, it, I remember where I was sitting the night that it passed and I was shocked. I mean, because we were in the midst of so much uncertainty and childcare programs were devastated at that time. Parents didn't know where to go. And I think it was a reckoning moment where people said, we cannot let this go on anymore. And so that's one of the, COVID is one of the reasons why it passed, I will say. Not just all the things we did before, but sometimes in crisis, there's something beautiful that comes out of it. And I think I sat there on the news and said, I actually, I called one of the members of the PAC and said, do you believe that this just happened? And she was like, no. I mean, I think we were in tears. What, what do you mean when you say that COVID is one of the reasons it, it passed? I mean, like, in particular, how yeah. do you think, what do you think people who hadn't reckoned with this before understood about the role that childcare plays in society right. because of the closure of childcare centers? Right. They were the wheels that kept the economy going for many families. People could not work because their children had no place to go. And I think we knew that, but we really knew it when COVID hit and people shut down. And there were providers still struggling through that and still stayed open, you know, really putting their own health on the line, not all the things that we didn't know about COVID. I mean, but people I think said, okay, this is real. Like we've been saying this, I've been in this field over 25 years. We've been saying like, this is what keeps the wheels of the economy going. You know, preschool, Childcare, if that doesn't happen, then really a lot of the wheels of the economy stops. And so we're still in recovery from that now. 20% are still closed. I mean, so I think we're one of the, the reasons why we'll bring some of those folks back is because now it's recognized, stable, paid well, and we're, there's supports around, around that. How is the system that you've been building based on voter approval for the last couple of years, how is it similar or different from other efforts that, that have the same intentions in other big cities around the country. Mm -hmm. I think it's really the work of that planning, that 10-year planning. I mean, we had all kinds, we had healthcare, we had K-12, we had for-profit, non-profit, philanthropy. You know, we had a champion, you know, in the then commissioner, Vega Peterson, that Really, we looked at every part of this. One of the things I will say is different is that we really recognized that we wanted to think about equity, racial equity, and how will this rollout impact existing providers and other places. They just said, we're only going to fund school districts. We're only going to fund these bright, shiny centers. But we know in our community that parents want those providers, like I said earlier, that look like them, that are culturally responsive, and we wanted to invest there because that's what parents said they wanted. We didn't want to open something that shut them down. So we really planfully thought about what our impacts in the community would be, and I think that is part of the difference, and we welcome those. I mean, if family child care doesn't work, none of this works. So if we can test things out there, 
we know we're doing well. And so we're really focusing on that. And you'll see, you know, some of our folks here, they were family childcare. They've been expanded to center-based care. They, it really has stabilized them in a way that looks like they can have a stronger business. I think that is some of the difference. We actually have with us um, Karen Messner, who is the owner of two Pequeñitos childcare centers, one in North Portland, one in Northeast Portland. Um, you are a part of preschool for all now, but I, I thought we could start with um, with the the pre years. What what was it like for you with the pandemic and before you were a part of this county program? Okay, I started like seventeen years ago on in home chokers. I have three in home chokers, and when COVID hit, it's a mess. We only have five kids and you know we don't can afford to keep all our staff because you know by that time the state or ERDC they only pay the time when the kids come you know if they don't show up they don't pay you and you know families who they are private pay they don't come because they're not working and you know some staff they don't want to work because they're scared to be you know for the COVID and on that year, I start on the process of opening my first center. They take me two years to open it. But a center as opposed to a, a home-based care. Yeah, I start like an in-home daycare, and I open a, a center mm -hmm. uh, with a capacity for 70 kids. And I get my application for preschool for all. And they give me the stability, you know, to hire my teachers. Um they offer them good salaries, good benefits. Families are happy because, you know, this is like, a, it's free. They can offer 10 hours a day. They have a safe and quality childcare. And I opened my second center this year uh, with capacity for 53 kids. Hmm. And I can say right now we grow up, we have between the three places, I have one school, uh, after school program, we have 130 kids, 30 staff. All my staff are really happy, really excited because they have a really good, you know, making good money, good salaries and benefits. Are, there, are they getting paid more or do they have better benefits than they did before? Oh, yes. Before, I don't can offer them medical, dental, sick times, holidays. Right now, I offer all that to my, to my staff. Has that affected the the quality of the people who are applying for jobs, the, the experience they have, and, and the, the experience for your kids, being able to pay people more? Yes. You know, I try to hire with a bachelor degree. I prefer teachers with a bachelor degree. Uh, last year, I had the opportunity to bring seven teachers from Mexico on a special program they call G1 Visas, exchange, cultural exchange visas. All my teachers have a bachelor's degree. You can see the, it's, it's a big difference. They are really happy and exciting to work in here. Um, my program is in Spanish immersion school, so that's the reason why I bring all uh, native uh, Spanish speakers. And, you know, it's great. The families, I can say, they are really happy with the programs. I can hear every single day they accomplish to preschool for all because, you know, they can work. They have a great place where to take the kids safe and, you know, it's really easy to communicate with them. If you have something, you email them and you have an answer right away. It's great. When you say they, meaning county employees who work for this program mm -hmm. and you've had an easy time oh, with yeah. communication. Yes. What have you heard from parents of your kids? They say if... It's not, you know, preschool for all is not um, then to support them. They don't can afford to pay childcare because childcare is really, really expensive. It's like a mortgage or, you know, difficult to find places where to do, you know, to pay and to trust. And, you know, for us, it's the same. You don't have to be thinking, you know, do I have enough money to pay my rent? Preschool for all send you the kids or the families you just do the interview. They choose the place where they want to go. So it's, you know, it's really easy to complete and have your, your center full with the capacity and that way you can offer, you know, jobs and everything for your employees. 
So you've opened up two centers just in the last two years. Yes. How much more demand is there for, for your services? Yes, you know, I have a big waiting list. Would you like to open a third center? Yeah, I'm working on it. You are. <laughs> <laughs> and is it going to be a challenge to hire enough people to work in it? It is. I have to be honest. Yes, it is. Karen Messner, thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> that is Karen Messner, who is the owner of two Pequeñitos Child Care Centers. Um, we've got a, a parent of two children uh, with us, uh, one of whom began at a preschool for all school, Escuela Viva, um, this fall. Ariana Avena, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My understanding is that you tried to get your daughter into a preschool for all slot last year, uh, but it didn't work out. What was last year like for you? Um, traumatic, to say the least. We went through several preschools last year. Uh, my kid is neurodivergent. They have cognitive delays in many areas. One of them is imp impulse control, um, gross motor function, and they also have sensory processing disorder. But I was one of those parents who was thinking about preschool from the time that I was pregnant. And I was really, really excited. And like had dreamt this dream for so long of what it was going to be like to send them there. And it just was the opposite experience of what I thought it was going to be. Um, so yeah, we went through three preschools. We were asked to leave from one of them because of her neurodivergent behavior. Another one we experienced some abuse in and we had like to open up a DHS case around it. Um, and then the other was wonderful. It was a great, like, neurodiverse school, specifically serving that community of kids, but it was not in Portland. It was in Tigard. So it was like 35 minutes to get there every day. Hmm. So that's why we applied again. And this time you got in. We got in. What's it been like for you and for your family? It's been amazing. Um, I did struggle with the thought of even trying again, to be honest with you to go to preschool again for the second year because it was so hard last year. Um, but beyond the freedom that it gave us to, to go to preschool, beyond like the finance element of it, there was this other comfort that we felt knowing that this program had our back. And so the list of schools that they had available, I just felt more comfortable than, than I had in previous times. What has it meant financially that right now preschool for your daughter, for your family, is free? Well, I, you know, income, our income is pretty good. We were able to get into a good preschool last year, what looked like a good preschool, several of them. <laughs> but we weren't able to get into that great school. And what is a good preschool um, for a lot of kids who are neurotyp neurotypical is very different than what is a good school for neurodiverse kids. So those needs are often higher and can only be served in like a very high quality school, which I'm really happy to say are the schools that I've seen from Portland Preschool for All. Ariana Venna, thanks very much. Thanks. <laughs> Leslie Barnes, I, I want to go back to you. How big is demand right now for available, for, for preschool spots and and available preschool for all spots. What's right. what, just broadly? What's yeah. what are those two yeah. numbers like? So that number last year, I said we had about fourteen hundred spots. We had over over twenty five hundred people apply. So within that, of course, you can see where everyone wouldn't get in. And so again, as we're talking about who's applying, we are looking at who needs it the most right now. We are talking about a universal system, but we are trying to weigh and balance uh, the needs against what we have available. How do you do that? So, I mean, is there yeah. means testing, for example? There isn't a means test, but there is a very complicated algorithm that we use. It actually has a noble, some kind of prize behind it, and I can get you all the detail, but Behind the scenes, they look at a lot of, there's a lot of factors in how someone gets in, who, who, they're, who they're applying for, how many other people are applying in there, right? And there's a lot of things that kind of get you in or out. So you mentioned that, that about 1,400 kids right now are in preschool for all slots mm -hmm. somewhere mm -hmm. in, in various centers. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense for how many of those were already in existence mm. before Preschool for All came on the scene mm -hmm. and, and made those slots free? 
I do. I don't have the number in front of me, but I'll say it to you like this. So one of the things that we talked about earlier, there's people already in business, these small business owners. And so we don't want to come on the scene and purchase your slots and then your Zixic families get kicked out. Like we don't want people to lose their current availability. So for the first year, we're saying those those kiddos get to stay in, and the next year we'll have more slots. We also know that about 20% of our providers are expanding into new slots. The slots that you see represented at schools are are new for the most part. So PPS since you know those David Douglas, those are new slots. Those folks did not have that investment before, and so you'll see more of that. But I think really we want to contract with people that are existing vet have a reputation in the community. So how do we stabilize them by purchasing slots from them? Then we may not buy all their slots, but we want them to make that opportunity available to those families. This is an important point because one of the critiques I've seen, mm-hmm. um, Lambert Week had a, a cover article about this that I, I bet a lot of listeners saw. Yeah. And the, the implication was, wait a minute, I thought we were going to get these new slots. So why are why are something like half of the preschool for all slots, why are, why are they places that were already right. up and running. Right. Um, and it makes sense. You don't want to kick people out if they're, if they're happily at a right. school. Right. But, um, but what was the thinking in terms of, of working with existing locations as opposed to really having a laser focus on creating new ones? So imagine this. Imagine we come on the scene and we just contract all new slots with people that have not been in business, don't have a licensed history, don't have... Like, and then something happens there. Then you'd be hearing another story about why did they give all these slots to these people that aren't vetted, don't have a reputation, don't we have would all these things. Do that, conversation. that would be <laughs> that that's exactly what would happen. And so, of course, we want to support and stabilize them, but we do want to talk to folks that already have again, we also know too, there's information about new businesses. How long do they stay in business? Those are like a 50%. You know, entrepreneurship is unstable. So we don't want to necessarily just connect with someone that just decided, I want to do preschool with kids this year. The parents would ask us, so what did you do to find out? We don't know anything about those folks. So our first set of folks are going to be people that have, this is a profession. I got to remember and remind people that these, we just don't want anybody working with our youngest citizens. We want someone that can navigate licensing, that can hire folks. So, I mean, that's some of the key. We, I don't think people would really want us to do that. But there will be opportunities for community-based organizations, right, that haven't done this. Like, how do we support them and support in their community? How could they hire teachers as we look at workforce to come in and operate these kinds of programs? So they'll be multi-tiered the way we bring in these new places. That makes sense as you're describing it. But it also makes me realize that on some level, the the easier to ramp up growth is is happening now. And, and sort of the, the vetted people... The experienced people, you start right. with them right. and and build that up. Right. But it does make me think that that in order for you to succeed, for us to succeed <laughs> as a county, because mm-hmm. it's us, um, and with twelve thousand yep. free spots in seven years, the clock is ticking. Yep. That some of the harder work is still ahead of you. Uh, yeah. What do you see as as just the challenges of that ramp up in the coming years? Right. Um, so it is the folks who have, you know, the entrepreneurial bone that want to do that. Then it's like, how do we bring on community-based organizations that aren't early learning providers? So we don't, again, we just don't want anyone, but we want to support them. And how do they think about bringing on staff? How do they design these kinds of programs? All right, we got to take a break. Yeah. We still have to talk about a lot of things, about community-based organizations, about workforce development, about yeah. not kicking kids out based on behavior, on yes. a lot more. Stay tuned. <laughs> This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, we're coming to you today in front of an audience upstairs from the Rockwood Market Hall in Gresham. We're getting an update on Multnomah County's Preschool for All program, which voters passed in 2020. It's part of a series of conversations about some of the state's most pressing problems and some possible solutions. Leslie Barnes is still with us. She is the director of Multnomah County's Preschool and Early Learning Division. Right before the break, we were talking about community organizations and the role that they are playing now and could increasingly play in preschools in the county. Abdisalan Mousse and Dee Hayward are here from Cairo PDX Center for African Immigrants and Refugees. Abdisalan, first, Deputy Executive Director of the nonprofit, 
Why did you decide that your nonprofit would get, should get involved in childcare? It all began for us when um, Disparity Academic Report was published back in 2014-15. And as a result of that, we uh, learned that uh, our community, uh, particularly underserved populations, African immigrant refugee populations, needed a preschooling program. Uh, prior to that, they didn't have any you know, preschooling program directed at them at all. And then, as, and then we decided to uh, institute one and, and develop one, and, and that's how Cairo was founded in response to the community needs and, and the disparity. And then we decided to go ahead and, and build a preschooling program. Um, we started the first one back 2017 at David Douglas School District, and then we expanded uh, to where we have right now five preschooling program. Uh, three of them are preschool uh, promise, and two of them are preschool for all Maloma County. And since then, we, uh, that date uh, when we started preschooling program, we've graduated close to 150 preschoolers. Um, so, Dee Hayward, can you give us a sense for the services you provide? Yeah, um, we have five classrooms, as Abdi said, um, mentioned earlier. Um, we, we have two funders, Preschool Promise and Preschool for All. Um, I like what Leslie just mentioned, right? Um, she said that parent doesn't care what preschool promise or preschool for. I really like that statement because they got really mixed up. Like, I want your classroom at Besto because it belongs to preschool for all. We have two classrooms there. And we have another three classrooms um, that preschool promise give us funding to run. Um, we're lucky to be part of preschool for all. Um, that allow us to provide high-quality program here. Um, the funding is great. Um, it's allow us to create a program how we aim to be from year 2000, 2016 um, that we first started our first classroom. And it got developed more and more. We try to you know, use every penny that we got from the funder to give it to the community that we serve. Also, when... I heard Adriana's um, story as well. We have so many special needs in our classroom right now. Um, I, back then, about two, three years ago, I worked with um, different organizations. When we had special needs children in our classroom, we didn't have funding support, right? We just have to try to find a way to help our staff. Meaning there, there wasn't funding for specialists to, to help Special out. Need. Yeah, we have to partner with like early intervention program to try to find, a, you know, additional staff. How is it different now? It's different now because preschool for all provides um, inclusion funding. So we allow us to hire extra staff, right? So that's from inclusion fund. So we have more people to, you know, provide that observation, bring the children into, um, from the children with special needs, help them, you know, like, um, join the group, provide safety for the children, and maintain high quality of programs so the teacher won't get, like, burned out. What, what do you think all this means for parents and their kids? It means a lot. We, um, we got really positive feedback from the parents um, who have children with special needs, and they're really impressed. And before we even ask for funding or additional funding from inclusion fund, we have to make sure that we got feedback from the parent that, that you know, are we doing a good job with your child? If we don't have that, then we don't, we don't feel comfortable asking for money because we feel like, are we doing what we can and are we deserve the funding that's been given to give it to the families, right? Abdulam say, how much can you expand? You've, you've obviously already expanded in the last two years, but... If this is going to work, as we've been talking about, everybody, there has to be just massive expansion all over the county. How much more can you do? Uh, I think we've been um, trying to partner with local school districts, thanks to David Douglas, uh, Reynolds, Portland Public School, Beaverton School District, uh, Hillsborough School District. We've been partnering with those uh, school districts, and they've been extremely helpful, along with our foundations and that has been supporting us. And we have learned that uh, the best way to do right now is perhaps to look into buildings where we could purchase a new building, our own, where we could provide preschooling for all four or five classes. That is, is right now is basically uh, what we're working on right now. Uh, we've seen a lot of wait lists 
we've seen a, a lot of demand. Uh, every year we've seen parents coming to us because of the cultural responsive services that we provide to them. Uh, it's been really an amazing, and, and we're working on it right now as we speak. Can, are there enough bilingual, bicultural teachers for you to, to find um, to actually ramp up like that? It's been a struggle. Uh, the workforce has been very challenging finding bilingual, bicultural individuals who look, the, you know, the very uh, children that we are servicing. Uh, and Which was reflect- one of the big points that you said you that's what set you off on this in 2016. Absolutely. So at times we're lucky uh, finding those folks and we, we get it. And at times it's very challenging um, bringing those folks. So we were currently working with a, a local um, uh, institution where we're, we're working on building up, grow your own uh, kind of a thing where we could develop some kind of a pipeline and recruit a lot of folks who are interested in and have a passion for teaching so that they can basically become a teacher Israeli and, and, and provide services mm-hmm. to the community. Uh, Abdi Salon, Musay, and D. Hayward, thanks very much. Thank you. They joined us from Cairo PDX. We're joined now by Mary King, Professor Emerita of Economics at Portland State University. Mary, it's good to have you back on Think Out Loud. Good to be here. Thank you. How did you get interested in studying childcare or preschools from an economics perspective? Economists love early childhood programs. We think they're fantastic. They're sort of one of the silver bullets of public policy. You accomplish so many things with early childhood education. They're probably our best economic development policy, or one of them, of a short list. They're a two-generation anti-poverty strategy. They're good for reducing gender disparities, racial disparities, class disparities. They're the best thing you can do for increasing high school graduation rates and incomes once kids get in. I mean, early childhood, if you can only intervene in one place, it should be early childhood. And that's so misunderstood. People just don't get that, that everything starts there. What about the flip side? What happens? What are the, what are the societal repercussions uh, in a society that doesn't value, that doesn't invest in, that doesn't provide accessible, affordable, quality young education, early childhood education? We waste human potential. I mean, we waste people. Are we... Early childhood is about public investment in people, and we do far too little of it. There's a huge return. People only think about investing in highways and things like that. But investing in people is enormous. And just from a cold-blooded perspective, you know... That's, if you you're an economist. That's why we brought you exactly. here. Exactly. <laughs> if you don't even care that we're wasting people, but... If you want to reduce incarceration rates, unemployment, substance abuse, early childbearing, if you want to grow your tax base, you have a more inclusive economy, if you want to send more people to college, you should invest in early childhood education. That's where it happens. That's where brains are exploding. Why why do you you think we're so bad at it then? I have many theories about this. But we are too market-oriented. We do not think about the power of public investment. The return on so many public investments is so much higher than what anybody's getting by investing in another, I don't know what, you know, a watch that will tell you if it's your birthday or not. You know, it's, it's a tremendous waste of resources that we spend so little in the public sector and so much in the private. Let's uh, take a comment from our audience. What's your name? And go ahead. Hi, yeah. Uh, my name is Courtney Verno. I had a question um, for Mary. You mentioned that uh, investing in early childhood has a poverty reduction, like multi-generational. So I'm thinking that you're, you're hinting at the parents and maybe particularly mothers. <laughs> what are some of the benefits uh, that we see particularly for for mothers and maybe even grandmothers as well too when we invest in early childhood and, and child care. 
That's one of the advantages that hits boom right away in this investment is more women need and want to work more and to get more training, and they cannot do it in this country because we don't invest in childcare and early childhood education. And we are falling behind in terms of women's labor force participation, which is not just like, oh, that's obviously a good thing. But no, people need and want to work. Families are struggling, and they cannot do it. They cannot afford childcare. They cannot afford, certainly they can't afford the kind of high-quality, multifaceted programming like Preschool for All, where you get all kinds of family choice about schedule, about cultural approach, about language, all kinds of things. Nobody, you know, nobody can afford it. But, I'm sorry, I digress. But... Women can go to work more, they earn more over their lifetimes, they're less poor in old age, and there's tremendous women's poverty in old age, and there's tremendous women's poverty in single-parent families. One in four kids is being raised by a single mother. What is she supposed to do? You have to have a really, you have to have childcare, and it ought to be great. I just have to one, put one plug in, which is we do have the best program in the country. If you study what's available out there, the project that Preschool for All is on is better than any other. Why do you say that? Because they have looked at best practices in terms of what gets called mixed delivery, in-home, you know, schools, centers, because they are being really intentional about what is the best fit for families, because they are thinking about what schedules people need, because they are investing in the workforce, and that's tremendously needed. You know, preschool teachers earn half what kindergarten teachers earn, and most people don't think kindergarten teachers earn a lot of money. So people who love this work can't afford to stay in it. They leave Six out of seven people with a college degree in the Portland metro area in early childhood do not work with young children. They have invested in a strong interest. They do not. They can't afford it. What do they do instead? Well, the biggest thing they do is they go into K through 12. They have benefits. They have a steady salary. And, you know, they are lost to our young children. Well, so let's turn to this because this is, this is a question of the pipeline of educators, uh, of early education educators. Jackie Mayorga Rivera is with us, uh, college navigator for early childhood education at Mount Hood Community College. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What does it mean to be a college navigator? Um, So my position is funded through Preschool for All. Um, This role was just created last year, so I've been at my position for one year now. Um, And it's there for outreach and retention. So my role, I go out into the community and I tell folks about the programs that we offer at Mount Hood Community College, specifically in early childhood. Um, And then once we get students there, my role is to make sure that they stay and that they are successful and that they graduate. Um, there's so much that partakes in all of that. Um, we help students get their criminal background checks done. So like by the time our students graduate, they are ready to start working. Um, part of our program is a co-op where, um, folks who, sorry, lost my train of thought. Hold on, come back. (laughs) Um, So the co-op is to get students hands-on experience in an early childhood setting. So there are students that are already working there. So we, in an early childhood setting, so we partner up with their facility and we make sure that there are qualified mentor teachers so that they can fulfill um, their co-op requirement to graduate. So we want them to graduate with experience. And if they're currently already working there, we want to enhance their experience. Is it your role, your job, to encourage people who aren't sure what they want to do to think about a career in early child education? Or is it to say, hey, young person, you've shown interest in this. I'm going to help you succeed in the path you've already chosen. It's both. Um, Right now, since I've been in the position a year, um, we were trying to figure out where we wanted to focus. And this past year, I focus with the community, with folks who are already working in the field and with preschools who do not want to lose their staff as these standards are raising, right? Because we want to have 
um, preschool access for all of the children in Multnomah County. We also need to make sure that we have qualified staff members to fill these positions at these preschools. So there's a lot of um, facilities that are actually reaching out to us and are like, hey, I don't want to lose my staff. My staff has great experience, but we're working with Preschool for All and we want to meet their standards. So what can we do to get our students where they need to be? As you just heard um, from Mary King, was it six out of seven people who get a bachelor's degree in early childhood education don't end up working for uh, at, at preschools. They Many of them, she says, go to K-12 education. Do you share that stat with the students you're working with? Yes. We also share the fact that Preschool for All is raising their salaries. So it incentivizes them to get more education. So, for example, if a... Um, if a person has their associate's degree, which is what we offer, they earn uh, the same amount as a kindergarten teacher. And if they earn a bachelor's degree, it's significantly more than that. So all of that is information that we share with them. Is that working? I mean, when you when you talk about um, how much more they can earn, do you find that there's more interest in, in having people pursue this as a career? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interest in the field, as I've seen just talk, going out and talking to the community. Um, the biggest concern is making sure that they're able to take care of themselves and their families. And by sharing this information that like we're raising the bar on you know how much you get paid so that you're able to do what you love and that you're able to live the life that you want. Um, and that's really helping out. I mean, there's so many people that are passionate about this field, but that's what's been holding them back. How would you describe the gender breakdown of your students? Mostly female. How much mostly? <laughs> um, right now in our classes for this term, we have one male student. Out of how many students? Out of 56. 56, okay. <laughs> I was asking because I, I walked into this room right before the, the show started, and um, we've done, I don't know, Oh, dozens and dozens and dozens of shows in front of audiences all over the state about so many different topics over the last dozen years. And this is one of the has the, the highest percentage of, of women or women identifying or presenting people that out of almost any show I can remember. Um, and I, I mentioned this, Leslie Barnes, to you, and, and I said, is this, are you surprised? And you said, no. And I don't, I guess on some level, I've been, <laughs> I'm in my 40s now. It's not like I'm naive about our society's gender norms and gender expectations and the overwhelming um, amount of, of child rearing and sort of social work and family work that women do in this country as opposed to men. But I, it's still really dispiriting to... Um, to just to sort of see it and to think we're having a public policy conversation here um, and there are almost no men who are involved in the conversation. What do we do with that? Call it out like you just did. Um, I think and it's something that this work has always been thought of as women's work, people of color's work, right? And that it didn't pay well, so why would a man want to do it, right? It's an extension of mothering. That's what most people think about. So I think there will have to be intentional work to welcome men and say, we want you here. Is that um, something that you're trying to do? Yeah, it's something. So our, we, our staff engage in something we call Equity Focus Fridays. And we actually had a conversation about men in the workforce as like, did you think about this? And there's other efforts in other communities to bring men in. What does that look like? What does it mean to young boys to see men in classrooms, to see men playing with a doll? You know, what does that mean and how that could impact them? So it is something we're talking about. What can you, your office do to make it more likely that new centers that are opening up are going to survive, are going to, to you know, last two years, last 20 years? Right, right. right. I think one of the investments that we made early on is um, talk, thinking about business. Because so that was really the thing that sh stood out when COVID came. So I was working at the state and helping people navigate. What does it mean that my staff need to get unemployment? What does it mean to have certain policies? So I think it's like the business acumen and navigating that. So our partners at MISO really help folks think about themselves as a business. And what does it look like to hire people? What are your hiring practices? Because you can pay someone very well, but if you're not a good employer, 
right? They're not going to stay. And so what does it look like to be a strong employer? So I think that is some of the, and then what happens in our field too is because we're short staff, I'm sure some of you guys know this in this room is someone quits and now you get an automatic promotion and no one has prepared you for that because we have to stay in ratio, you have licensing and all those things. Ratio meaning you have to have a certain number of adults based on the kids. Right, right. And so what happens is you have people that really have not been prepared to operate these businesses. They were teachers in the classroom, but that doesn't mean they know how to mentor, right, or lead staff, right? And so there's another piece of skill set that needs to occur to keep people in here because we're burning people out by sticking them in places they're not ready for. And then they go work at Walmart where they could make the same or more. And so how do we keep them in there? Because we need them to grow up in the field to mentor the folks that are coming, right? And so that's another part of not just bringing in these people, but how do we maintain the people that are here that want to stay? What is, um, what's your approach to suspensions or expulsions? It's something that we heard earlier. It's an important point, and I, I didn't want to miss it. Right. So the research has shown that suspension and expulsion happens disproportionately for black and brown children, especially in early childhood programs. Now, the majority of early childhood programs are privately owned, and so it was a way because you didn't have highly skilled teachers or folks that could work with children with behaviors. You just said they're not a good fit, right, and you excluded them. Sorry, we wish we could keep him, but he's, yeah, he's being too disruptive. Yeah, you know, he's too disruptive. And there's a Which lot, is understandable. Right. It can be, but a lot of the things that are happening are typical child behaviors. We're not talking about things outside of the norm, and so we got to skill up folks. I talked to the staff about there's a heart and mind that all the training in the world will not necessarily get you there. You are the person for the job if the child comes to the door if they're a preschool for all child. And so we're going to help you maintain that slot. And that's why when we talk about inclusion funds, for example, when we talk about MISO, right, if the director is wearing so many hats and doesn't hire the right people, like they burn out. So they're certainly not going to take a child that's going to run that teacher they just hired out the door. Right. And so what does it look like to really come around and support them in that? And so, yeah, we have a strong because that particular behavior of expulsion really sets a child on a trajectory. So they used to talk about the school to prison pipeline. It's called the preschool to prison pipeline now because children that are expelled from preschool are on a trajectory. They already feel like they have already failed. They're three years old. Right. And so what does that look like as they move throughout the system? And so we want to make sure parents know what we talk about when we're talking about expulsion. We want to make sure we hear from parents. We want to support providers. We don't want to overwhelm them if they have a lot of children with behaviors. That's a lot. Because in the past, they were private entrepreneurs that could welcome and kick out anyone they wanted. The state is also making that an illegal practice, right? So we're trying to prepare people for something that's already going to be a law in 2025, right? And so we want to make sure those children have the best start and that we're supporting that child. Let's take another comment or question from our audience. Go ahead. Uh, yes, you asked. Uh, I am Angie Garcia. I am the owner of Escuela Viva, and I've been in uh, operation for 20 years. And one of the questions that you asked is, like, how are we going to get there? How are we going to serve all these children? There's one really important part that we haven't discussed, and you also asked how men can be involved, and I think this is part of it. There is a real struggle to get facilities that are affordable, that landlords are actually practicing in a way that helps support these businesses be successful. And then even if you find a building, the uh, amount of money it costs to renovate that building, maybe the occupancy isn't what it needs to be. Those SDC fees, which are system development charges, are astronomical. And so it just really prices out small providers like us who want to expand, uh, but yet there are many barriers to doing that. So facilities is a huge barrier. If we're going to, if we're going to find spots for all of these children, we really have to put a really close eye on policies and things that are barriers to providers moving into spaces. Thanks for that. So that initial investment in thinking about facilities that uh, Angie talked about is kind of like a was like sneak peek of, of our facilities fund. So we'll have a facilities fund that'll come on board this next year. And so we'll have $16 million this year to talk about not just the physical building, but 
I know so many stories like Angie of people are trying to navigate this on their own, right? Find the right architect. Um, you know, they, there's a P-bot. <laughs> you know, something happens. You know, the state is not in alignment with the city. And so we're really talking about navigation so they don't make expensive mistakes. And so we'll be making sure that those, if you're interested, we'll send out, you know, what the, an interest form pretty soon so that people that have projects can get some money to do that. Because even though they don't have that money, we have 20% of our providers that expanded without this investment just because they were stable. I mean, so it's about, you know, helping them think about what does a, a good looking lease look like so they don't sign something that gets them in a situation that isn't great for their business. Um, you know, what is a good invest? How do you find a place that has the amount of square footage, the, the toilets, all those things? Because I've seen in, in my time in supporting providers over my career, really expensive kinds of mistakes. And so we don't want that. So it's not just money to have the brick and mortar, but it's also the navigation and the experts to help you uh, navigate that. Leslie Barnes, thank you very much. Thank you. Leslie Barnes is the director of the Preschool and Early Learning Division at Multnomah County. We also heard earlier from Mary King, Professor Emerita of Economics at Portland State University. Thanks to all the folks here at Multnomah County's Preschool and Early Learning Division who helped series producer Allison Frost put all the puzzle pieces together for today. And a big thanks to the Oregon Community Foundation for funding this whole series of shows around Oregon focused on solutions. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on NPR's app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust. Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford. So much of what we talk about on this show has to do with what's happening right now. But there's a lot of history behind these conversations. OPB's Salmon Wars podcast will give you insights into some of that history. It tells the story of one Yakima Nation family that's been fighting for salmon in the Columbia River across generations. Find Salmon Wars wherever you listen to podcasts.